Chapter Fourteen of Behind the Beyond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. Behind the Beyond by Stephen Leacock. Chapter Fourteen, Homer and Humbug, an academic discussion. Homer and Humbug, an academic discussion. The following discussion is, of course, only of interest to scholars. But, as the public school's returns show that in the United States there are now over a million coloured scholars alone, the appeal is wide enough. I do not mind confessing that, for a long time past, I have been very sceptical about the classics. I was myself trained as a classical scholar. It seemed the only thing to do with me. I acquired such a singular facility in handling Latin and Greek that I could take a page of either of them, distinguish what it was by merely glancing at it, and with the help of a dictionary and a pair of compasses, whip off a translation of it in less than three hours. But I never got any pleasure from it. I lied about it. At first, perhaps, I lied through vanity. Any coloured scholar will understand the feeling. Later on I lied through habit. Later still, because, after all, the classics were all that I had, and so I valued them. I have seen thus a deceived dog value a pup with a broken leg, and a pauper child nurse a dead doll with the sawdust out of it. So I nursed my dead Homer, and my broken Demosthenes, though I knew in my heart that there was more sawdust in the stomach of one modern author than in the whole lot of them. Observe, I am not saying which it is, that has it full of it. So, as I say, I began to lie about the classics. I said to people who knew no Greek that there was a sublimity, a majesty about Homer which they could never hope to grasp. I said it was like the sound of the sea beating against the granite cliffs of the Ionian esophagus, or words to that effect. As for the truth of it, I might as well have said that it was like the sound of a rum distillery running a night shift on half-time. At any rate, this is what I said about Homer, and when I spoke of Pindar, the dainty grace of his strophes, and Aristophanes, the delicious sallies of his wit, sally after sally, each sally explained in a note calling it a sally, I managed to suffuse my face with an animation which made it almost beautiful. I admitted, of course, that Virgil, in spite of his genius, had a hardness and a cold glitter which resembled rather the brilliance of a cut diamond than the soft grace of a flower. Certainly I admitted this. The mere admission of it would knock the breath out of anyone who was arguing. From such talks my friends went away sad. The conclusion was too cruel. It had all the cold logic of a syllogism like that almost brutal form of argument so much admired in the paraphernalia of Socrates. For if Virgil and Homer and Pindar had all this grace and pith and these sallies, and if I read Virgil and Homer and Pindar, and if they were only read Mrs. Wharton and Mrs. Humphrey Ward, then where were they? So continued lying brought its own reward in the sense of superiority, and I lied more. When I reflect that I have openly expressed regret, as a personal matter, even in the presence of women, for the missing books of Tacitus, and the entire loss of the abracadabra of Polyphonus of Syracuse, I can find no words in which to beg for pardon. 
In reality, I was just as much worried over the loss of the Ichthysaurus. More, indeed, I'd like to have seen it. But if the books Tacitus lost were like those he didn't, I wouldn't. I believe all scholars lie like this. An ancient friend of mine, a clergyman, tells me that in Hesiod he finds a peculiar grace that he doesn't find elsewhere. He's a liar. That's all. Another man, in politics and in the legislature, tells me that every night, before going to bed, he reads over a page or two of Thucydides to keep his mind fresh. Either he never goes to bed, or he's a liar. Doubly so. No one could read Greek at that frantic rate. And anyway, his mind isn't fresh. How could it be? He's in the legislature. I don't object to this man talking freely of the classics, but he ought to keep it for the voters. My own opinion is that before he goes to bed, he takes whiskey. Why call it Thucydides? I know there are solid arguments advanced in favour of the classics. I often hear them from my colleagues. My friend, the professor of Greek, tells me that he truly believes the classics have made him what he is. This is a very grave statement, if well founded. Indeed, I have heard the same argument from a great many Latin and Greek scholars. They all claim, with some heat, that Latin and Greek have practically made them what they are. This damaging charge against the classics should not be too readily accepted. In my opinion, some of these men would have been what they are, no matter what they were. Be that as it may, I, for my part, bitterly regret the lies I have told about my appreciation of Latin and Greek literature. I am anxious to do what I can to set things right. I am therefore engaged on, indeed have nearly completed, a work which will enable all readers to judge the matter for themselves. What I have done is a translation of all the great classics, not in the usual literal way, but on a design that brings them into harmony with modern life. I will explain what I mean in a minute. The translation is intended to be within reach of everybody. It is so designed that the entire set of volumes can go on a shelf twenty-seven feet long, or even longer. The first edition will be an edition de luxe, bound in vellum, or perhaps in buckskin, and sold at five hundred dollars. It will be limited to five hundred copies, and of course sold only to the feeble-minded. The next edition will be the literary edition sold to artists, authors, actors, and contractors. After that will come the boarding-house edition, bound in board and paid for in the same way. My plan is to so transpose the classical writers as to give, not the literal translation word for word, but what is really the modern equivalent. Let me give an odd sample or two to show what I mean. Take the passage in the first book of Homer that describes Ajax the Greek dashing into battle in front of Troy. Here is the way it runs, as nearly as I remember, in the usual word-for-word -word translation of the classroom. As done by the very best professor, his spectacles glittering with the literary rapture of it. Then he too, Ajax, on the one hand leaped, or possibly jumped, into the fight wearing, on the other hand, yes, certainly a steel corslet, or possibly a bronze under-tunic and on his head, of course, yes, without a doubt, he had a helmet with a tossing plume taken from the mane, or perhaps extracted from the tail, of some horse which once fed along the banks of the Scamander, and it sees the herd and raises its head and paws the ground, and in his hand a shield worth a hundred oxen, and on his knees too, especially in particular greaves made by some cunning artificer, or perhaps blacksmith, 
and he blows the fire, and it is hot. Thus Ajax leaped, or perhaps was propelled from behind into the fight. Now that's grand stuff. There is no doubt of it. There's a wonderful movement and force to it. You can almost see it move, it goes so fast. But the modern reader can't get it. It won't mean to him what it meant to the early Greek. The setting, the costume, the scene, has all got to be changed in order to let the reader have a real equivalent to judge just how good the Greek verse is. In my translation, I alter it just a little, not much, but just enough to give the passage a form that reproduces the proper literary value of the verses, without losing anything of the majesty. It describes, I may say, the directors of the American industrial stocks rushing into the Balkan war cloud. Then there came rushing to the shock of war, Mr. McNichol of the CPR. He wore suspenders, and about his throat high rose the collar of a sealskin coat. He had on gaiters, and he wore a tie, he had his trousers buttoned good and high. About his waist a woollen undervest, bought from a sad-eyed farmer of the West. And every time he clips a sheep he sees some bloated plutocrat who ought to freeze. Thus in the stock exchange he burst to view, leapt to the post, and shouted, Ninety-two! There! That's Homer, the real thing. Just as it sounded to the rude crowd of Greek peasants who sat in a ring, and guffawed at the rhymes and watched the minstrel stamp it out into feet as he recited it. Well, let me take another example from the so-called Catalogue of the Ships, that fills up nearly an entire book of Homer. This famous passage names all the ships, one by one, and names the chiefs who sailed on them, and names the particular town, or hill, or valley, that they came from. It has been much admired. It has that same majesty of style that has been brought to an even loftier pitch in the New York Business Directory and the City Telephone Book. It runs along, as I recall it, something like this. And first, indeed, oh yes, was the ship of Homestogetes the Spartan, long and swift, having both its masts covered with cowhide and two rows of oars. And he, Homestogetes, was born of Homogenes and Ophthalmia, and was at home in Syncope beside the fast-flowing Paresis. After him came the ship of Preposterus the Eurasian, son of Oasis and Hyteria, and so on endlessly. Instead of this I substitute, with the permission of the New York Central Railway, the official catalogue of their locomotives taken almost word for word from the list compiled by their superintendent of works. I admit that he wrote in hot weather. Part of it runs, Out in the yard and steaming in the sun stands locomotive engine number 41. Seated beside the windows of the cab are Pat McGaw and Peter James McNabb. Pat comes from Troy and Peter from Coho's when they pull the throttle, off she goes, and as she vanishes, there comes to view steam locomotive engine number 42. Observe her mighty wheels, her easy roll, with William J. McCarthy in control. They say her engineer, some time ago, lived on a farm outside of Buffalo, whereas his fireman, Henry Edward Foy, attended school in Springfield, Illinois. Thus does the race of men decay or rot, some men can hold their jobs, and some cannot. Please observe that if Homer had actually written that last line, it would have been quoted for a thousand years as one of the deepest sayings ever said. 
orators would have rounded out their speeches with the majestic phrase quoted in sonorous and unintelligible greek verse some men can hold their jobs and some cannot essayists would have begun their most scholarly dissertations with the words it has been finally said by homer that in greek some men can hold their jobs and the clergy in mid pathos of a funeral sermon would have raised their eyes aloft and echoed some men cannot this is what i would like to do i would like to take a large stone and write on it in very plain writing the classics are only primitive literature they belong in the same class as primitive machinery and primitive music and primitive medicine and then throw it through the windows of a university and hide behind a fence to see the professors buzz end of chapter 14 end of behind the beyond by stephen leacock